You are listening to Inclusion Evolution, a bi-weekly podcast that brings you insightful and engaging conversations on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal profession, the technology space, the world of sports, and our everyday. Here are your hosts, Lisa Mueller and Michael Kasdan. Welcome back to Inclusion Evolution. I'm Lisa Mueller. And I'm Michael Kasdan. Well, Mike, today we're back with another guest, this time Mercedes Meyer. I know someone you know very, very well. Yeah, so I've known Mercedes um, for a bit. I was introduced um, to Mercedes um, through some folks I knew from the AI PLA, where she's uh, been a real leader. Uh, and I actually had the opportunity to meet uh, Mercedes in person when I was down in DC recently. And I'm so, so happy to have her on the podcast. Um, she's a patent attorney and a shareholder at Banner and Whitcoff. Uh, where she represents leading life science and technology companies, uh, maintaining extensive biotech and pharma patent management prosecution opinion and due diligence practice. Um, so she's got a doctorate in virology and a degree in chemistry. Um, so she has a really deep understanding of complex biotech and research topics, um, which is, of course, really important when you're advising life science clients on protecting and commercializing innovation, um, as well as performing diligence for investing in new technologies. Um, so Mercedes advises on developing patent strategies, managing IP rights, and making investments and acquisitions in IP-focused assets. Um, and she also handles, as if that wasn't enough, um, patent reexaminations and inter-parties reviews. Um, on the diversity front, um, which we connected over, Mercedes has, has long um, been a leader um, in, in that field and on that topic and a very uh, important voice, uh, I would say, on topics of diversity and inclusion and on mental health and well-being. Uh, and we really connected um, on those topics as well as all the patent stuff, of course. Um, so we're just so thrilled uh, to have you on the podcast, Mercedes. Yeah. Welcome, Mercedes. Like Mike said, we're really excited to have you here. It is so great to be here, and it is wonderful to even know about this podcast. Thank you, Mike, for having coffee with me and telling me all about the podcast. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah, that, that that's great, and it's my pleasure. And so, uh, yeah, let's get down to business. Um, I think just to kick things off, Mercedes, uh, you're passionate about diversity and inclusion. Um, you're now at Banner. Um, is that something that attracted you to Banner and Whitcoff? Absolutely. I had uh, a whole list of questions for every firm that I looked at, and diversity was a major question for any firm. I wanted to know the diversity in leadership and diversity overall. I mean, one of the great things about Banner is I'm back at a boutique. I've been now or am now two boutiques in my career, as well as, well, it depends on how you count merged firms, anywhere from four to six GP firms of close to a thousand people. Um, and I really like the boutique because everyone there understands, you know, what it is you do for a living. Um, the leadership here is diverse. Uh, our last president was East Indian, Banal Patel, and our current president, um, she was reelected, Janice Mitrius. She's already been a president in the past and we've had other female presidents. I've never really been at a place where we had female presidents. We've had Asian presidents. It is a very, it's diverse from the leadership on down. So that was one thing that appealed. And then since being here, I've seen how they highlight Black History Month, how they've highlighted Veterans Day with our own veterans here, which is another group of underrepresented. Wow. You have veterans. Um, That's impressive. Yeah, and we've highlighted them, and that's a big deal. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, you know, we hire veterans, and it's another thing to put it on your front page of your website, and they did that for Veterans Day. Why is that important to me? My husband's active duty, and there's nothing that pisses him off more than having law firms ignore Veterans Day yeah. um, at a work day. But anyway, that aside, um, but... I mean, we focus on other things. We are hiring diverse people. So in essence, they're not only just talking the talk like so many firms, but they're walking the walk. And I would say I have never felt as psychologically safe as I feel here at this firm. 
Uh, I've seen people state things that I would never have felt comfortable stating in an open group elsewhere. Um, Maybe it's from my generation. I don't know. But the other last thing that I really wanted to point out is that I felt that the leadership wasn't armored. When I asked questions, and I don't ask easy questions, if you know me, um, if they didn't know the answer, they said, we'll get back to you. And sometimes they asked, why is that important? That shows vulnerability, okay? And, you know, for one question, I explained why it was important. And I thought, that's cool. Here the president is saying, well, why is that relevant to business, to a law firm? And I explained it. And it showed a lack of hubris and defensive posturing in leadership, which is so important for people to feel safe enough to come forward. And that's so rare, too, right? I mean, usually they get defensive right out of the get-go, and, you know, then it kind of spirals downward from there. Or they bluff. Or they bluff. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's so so interesting what you highlighted there, um, because, you know, you used some terms that I think some people might say, like, oh, that's a a buzzword, psychological safety, we see it, what does it really mean, why is it important, or, you know, like the armored leadership term that I think comes from Brene Brown, but it's so interesting to hear you um, connect those, you know, some people say, oh, that's, that's soft skill stuff, or it's just buzzy terms, but I, I love how it really connects to what's important about leadership at a corporate and law firm level to you. I think it's so important for people. And when I have taught or blogged on due diligence of law firms in the past, Um, That was really when I was still getting used to blogging, um, had one of the highest hit rates because it looked at the economics. It looked at other things. Um, You know, it's sort of, okay. do you have a pink ghetto? Do you have another ghetto? Um, Again, I had a whole list of questions, anything from PPP loans um, during COVID uh, to you know, how were the staff treated? Because staff frequently get left out of the equation. And if you watch and see how they treat the staff, it gives you a good impression of how they may treat you and your team. Absolutely. (laughs) We're united on that one. So Mercedes, you just talked about why diversity is so important to you. Can you also talk a little bit about why diversity in the legal process and business in general is as equally important to you as well? Yeah, there are a lot of reasons why diversity is important, both in a corporation as well as in a law firm. Um, I think, and again, my personal opinion, it's a little bit like Pixar's Pearl, um, which is a great video if you haven't seen it. Um, where Pearl comes into a new working environment. She's really excited, but she looks completely different than all the others around her. Um, And it has been shown that statistically diverse corporations perform better on the stock market. I think that's because they're more creative. They're more psychologically safe. Why do those things tie together? Um, If you're not psychologically safe or not in a safe environment, you're not going to offer perhaps the most creative idea because that might be too risky. You're going to provide the standard answer, which won't be slapped down on. Uh, If you are feeling psychologically unsafe or not as safe, or you don't want to promote something that may be cast back at you as oh, that person's wackadoodle. Um, Again, you're not going to offer up that idea and no collaboration and fomenting around that idea can move forward. So I think it makes for bad legal options to offer up to a client. If you're in a law firm setting, you're not going to get as many options from which to choose from. Same thing for a corporation. And, you know, we'll get into it later, but when we did studies at IPO, the intellectual property owners, one of the lawyers at Merck, Sarah Houston, pointed out, you know, most women end up in manufacturing. It's kind of like, let's talk hidden figures. 
who were the hidden figures in World War II and Rocket Girls, which is another great book. The women were put into sort of those roles where you had to have attention to detail. They were good at coding. Um, but when money entered the scene, I always say, follow the money. Um, you know, software, female software engineers were increasing until the mid 90s. And they've been decreasing since then. Why? Follow the money. If there's a lot of money, there won't be a diverse population. Women get put into manufacturing positions because it's not as glamorous and there's not as much money. So, again, back to those ghettos. How do those ghettos get created? In large part by the money and the leadership has to be held accountable to have that diversity across the board. Yeah, I think it's so so interesting. You know, the three of us are all in the technology space you know, as lawyers. Um, and, you know, Lisa and I met um, at Autumn and, you know, talked about technology transfer and STEM and commercializing innovation. And listening to you speak, um, you know, it's really an innovation question. Um, you know, and if, if you don't have half the population of bright minds in there, how are you innovating and providing, you know, a great service? And then the only other thing I want to say is, um, of course, Lisa has seen Pearl because that's the cartoon that you shared with me and I shared it with Lisa because if there's one thing I will reliably do is share really good cartoons. He does. He shared it with me and I had actually not seen it. And I would encourage people to watch it because it is really powerful. And uh, like Mercedes said, you know, somebody new comes into an organization where everybody looks the same, dresses the same. And this new individual comes in, looks totally different and how... Uh, kind of morphs what she is to match um, the environment she's in. And then someone new follows her and uh, is kind of outcast. And then ultimately Pearl, who was the first new person and realizes that she shouldn't have changed herself and reaches out to the, the new person. And eventually it ends with a really great scene where the whole office is diverse. So that was a really great cartoon. And it was done, if you don't know, by female uh, engineers, cartoon software engineers. So, yay, women. Absolutely. Next, I, I know we highlighted some of the positives, um, but also living in the real world. We know there's not a sort of straight line here always to the good parts. Um, so I also wanted to just ask you what has been or is a frustration point for you with this work? Um, particularly inside a law firm, inside of any organization, really? Well, I mean, there's multiple frustrations, if you want to look at it that way. Um, one is sort of the lack of understanding that there's even an issue or tie for diversity, psychological safety, and mental health, right? And um, back to follow the money and uh, risk assessment. Uh, and risk management. And how I approach law firms uh, and legal management is I say, okay, this is a risk management issue. If you address diversity and substance abuse and mental health, guess what? All of those coincide and you will improve the bottom line overall. Um, so the first thing is making them appreciate how these issues come together. Another frustration is there's so much out there on the statistics and most people, you know, pick a, a legal journal every year. It's bemoaning the faith that the statistics haven't changed any. Um, yeah, the statistics haven't changed, but very few people teach. How do we change the system? What do we put in place? How do we make people accountable? Um, what has worked for other companies? What hasn't worked for other companies? People are not sharing in a sort of uh, diversity, mental health, psychological safety commons of ideas. Um, and you know, saying, oh, I'm going to go hire a consultant or I'm going to go have a chief diversity officer. Um, the consultant you can fire and they may not have been a lawyer to be able to help. And the chief diversity officer may not be in a position to help. Um, so 
I think that sometimes it has to be from the top down as well as from the bottom up. Um, and I'm just, I'm not seeing it. And then law schools are not helping the whole process. They continue their rigid model of the law and Socratic method and making you fear each other. Um, and if you want to go so far, our whole system of meritocracy and elitism isn't helping. Uh, we can look to the judiciary, the executive branch, and the legislative branch. Who do they want to hire from? Well, the top 10 schools. Well, not everybody's going to go to a top 10 school. Yeah, it's so funny you should mention that, um, Mercedes, because I work with Elaine Spector. I don't know if you know her from Herity and Herity. And, and we're working on a patent academy. I had one at my firm, which I'm merging into theirs, which is life science-based. And what part of Elaine's program is finding diverse individuals, particularly diverse women, jobs in IP. And one of the issues that we're having, particularly in the life science space, is we have a number of really um, bright, smart candidates who don't have PhDs, and they are not getting any jobs whatsoever versus the engineers and, and the computer scientists are getting jobs. So, you know, again, you know, it's a Another frustration, that's a particular frustration point of mine and Elaine, in addition to the ones that you just mentioned. Look, I can speak to that one. And I do speak to people going, why am I not hearing back from firms? I practice in the anything but district court litigation space of biotech. Yes, I have a PhD. Yes, all the people I work with have a PhD uh, on my team. Are there people here who don't have a PhD and believe that you don't need a PhD? Correct. Um, do my clients demand PhDs? Yeah, sometimes they do. Okay. Will they be able, will a person with a bachelor's degree be able to assess uh, when writing a patent application whether they have all the details sufficient to be able to replicate that experiment? The answer is probably no. Okay. And that's my big hurdle that I have to overcome. Will I hire somebody who has a bachelor's degree and other experience out there, in-house, out-house, so forth? Yeah, because they've gotten other experience. I will also hire somebody who worked in the lab for many years and just doesn't have that degree. But I want that went wet bench experience. I do not want to see a what I call a dry master's degree that gives you a biotech background because again, is that uh, example in that specification capable of replication, or am I missing stuff that I got to go beat the inventors and the client for? Absolutely. So I wanted to turn back on the diversity issue. You know, you talked about frustration points in response to Mike's question. What about positives? Have you seen and, and hopefully you've seen some things that are working really well? I mean, obviously at your firm, they're working very well. I think some positives are seeing some companies who are committed both internally as well as externally towards change on diversity. Uh, examples can include 3M. Um, and Audrey Sherman is a scientist at 3M and she has well over 100 inventions uh, patented. Bristol Myers and Micron are two other examples. Bristol Myers has a general counsel who has spent most of her career at Bristol Myers, uh, Sandy Leung. And Sandy Leung is a great leader of change. And they have created a very diverse group within their IP department. Um, Micron, under the CEO Sanjay Mirotra, uh, we just awarded him sort of Entrepreneur of the Year at IPO in large part because of what he's doing for innovators in the company. They have innovation groups that focus around handicaps, focus around women, focus around minorities. Why? They have ideas of what are the problems that are particular to them that they can solve. All right. Everybody has a problem that we can find a solution for. But if you omit the ideas because um, we're only going to, let's say, provide the idea for uh, what answer to a problem to 
the white men of the world, that's not going to be helpful or to just the men of the world. Um, and I think that's why they're doing so well is they're coming up with ideas for problems that reach everyone. IBM did the same thing. They have a scientist, female scientist who is blind and made the internet accessible to the blind. Uh, that was a huge innovation so that uh, visually handicapped individuals can benefit from all that the internet has. Those are great examples and great peoples and programs to know about. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I wanted to next ask you about the gender patent gap. Um, and I know, you know, we're all in the patent space. And so, you know, the gender patent gap focuses on the fact that, you know, for example, uh, statistically, um, the statistics um, are poor, right? So despite the fact that over 53% of PhDs are awarded to women, only 12% of recognized innovators in the U.S. are women. And I think, you know, we can, I think, talk about the gender patent gap, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But I think this problem, you know, as we talked earlier, you can generalize it into other areas, you know, STEM, tech transfer, you know, the IP, math, like all of these areas have these gaps. Um, and I'm wondering if we could get your take on why this is the the case. Yeah, I mean, we just finished um, Black History Month, and I'm going to come at it from two points, pink and black. Um, the first is, why does this occur? And when I first heard about this, this was uh, a function on Capitol Hill that Senator Mamie Hirono's office was holding, and, and I, just as a fluke, attended it with another lobbyist. And that was the first time I heard the uh, Institute of Women's Policy Research and the women for the women's um, women inventors committee from autumn really address the statistics that had just come out from WIPO. And I get curious and I went, okay, these statistics of 12% aren't making sense. Um, and I brought them into IPO. And what was really interesting, so I, I attended the meeting on Capitol Hill December 2016. Later in 2017, we, the Women's Committee of IPO, had them come speak. And the in-house people had no idea about it. And I remember looking around at Capitol Hill and who was in the room. Yeah, uh, PTO was there. AIPLA wasn't there. IPO wasn't there. I'm calling, where is everybody? This is important stuff. And we got a group together, uh, mainly because I said, okay, we got to solve this. Who else is going to solve it? We're, we're going to hire a consultant. That's a load of crap. Um, we're the closest in the trenches. We're the ones who have to solve this problem. And so we had people from both the WIC Committee of Autumn, as well as in-house folks, as well as out-house folks, sort of form uh, what um, Todd Dickinson always referred to as a rump group. And we worked together in this rump group to not only come up with why women won't come forward with ideas, but also how we can solve it. And we put this together in the 2018 autumn annual meeting down in Phoenix. And we provided a joint presentation and WIPO was there. And they were like, this is, they, they called us out in the plenary session and they said, this is awesome because they gave concrete ways to address it. And there's two constituencies, university constituency and nonprofit and for-profit corporation constituency. They have different problems that have to be addressed. And we had to address the differences in problems. Um, Henry Haddad, who was really instrumental, heard about our presentation, requested us to provide it to IPO, um, and turned around to all of us and said, okay, we want to have an alpha test of a toolkit. So now it got kicked back to us of corporations wanting to have an alpha test. We had five companies sign up before we left that board room at IPO. Um, it was so gratifying to hear these companies say, yeah, I'll do it. Um, and we started looking internally and creating that commons of ideas of what's working, what's not working. What may work for a micron may not work for a biotech company. So 
So we were looking across technologies. We looked at the statistics and broke it down further and said, okay, is this working in any every country? Well, no. Some countries had less than 10% women, notably countries like Australia and Japan. Why? They're not very pro-female. Um, other countries had much better statistics, but even there, it wasn't necessarily um, what you would think. For example, Korea, Poland, higher statistics than the U.S. Guess what? As Hedy Lamar learned, being sexy and having a brain don't coincide in the United States. You can't have both. Um, so sadly, if we can make having a brain and innovative for women um, be sexy, I think it would go a long way. Turning to the black portion, um, I will raise Professor Lisa Cook's information. She has some very notable economic papers out there that demonstrated the impact of um, uh, race riots and lynchings on black innovation. And I have really been trying to ed educate myself on what happened both during the Civil War up to 1920 with the eugenics movement and all the Jim Crow laws and how the Supreme Court was looking at things. And the rate of innovation amongst uh, Black innovators was higher at one point, I think, in the 1890s than white innovators. And it did not come back after the lynching and race riot impacts until 2011. Um, this goes back to psychological safety and trust. Why trust the system if the system doesn't enforce the laws equitably? Um, her statistics are very devastating to read. I was completely unaware of the Tulsa race riots, never having been taught it in my own education and history class on Long Island in New York as a high schooler. That was my first taste of it, and it has made me curious to learn more and to read more facts. And Professor Lisa Cook also has a pink and black gap divide. And really, why the toolkit may only be for women, and that's based on the fact that statistics on underrepresented groups cannot be analyzed from the WIPO statistics, and it was difficult even to determine gender. Um, we don't know, but intrinsically the same things apply. Again, psychological safety. Is the person feeling that they come, come forward with the idea as well as education? Um, there is now an increased lack of education to underrepresented groups because of the division of our education systems after the Civil War and through the 1960s that has led to a lack of education on IP generally to the public. You know, I've read a lot of uh, Dr. Cook's work, and it is pretty powerful when you read it. And it's interesting to me, Mercedes, that it hasn't gotten more traction that, or a lot more publicity. What's your thought on that? I also helped in getting uh, Dr. Cook nominated for um, IP Champion of the Year one year at IPO. Um, because she truly is an IP she champion. She really is, yeah. If we had women and underrepresented groups inventing at the same rate as white men, just think of the innovation we could bring forward. Talk about uh, inventions in the attic that are gaining dust because we haven't educated people on how to protect their IP, but more importantly, the entrepreneurial component of how to get it into market, how to get the venture capital to do it. Um, there's a linkage there, and that's its own problem. Yeah. But when we when we went ahead and and I really researched Dr. Cook to do a intro piece in the video for IPO, I realized she sought to have her work published in a notable. There's like two major notable economics journals for eleven years, and it took 
two Nobel laureates in economics, both white male, um, to push her paper and say, this is seminal work that needs attention. And I'm sorry if there's something that doesn't speak to the bias. It's the bias against a female professor on a subject on underrepresented groups um, where her own work is fully validated to Nobel laureates and there's a difficulty to bring this forward because it's not the norm. It's different. And she uses words like patent racism and I think that probably upset a lot of people. A lot of what we're talking about, the three of us today, are uncomfortable truths. Exactly. Okay. Look, they're not easy to discuss, but I tell people all the time, look, follow the money. You can improve things. You can make it better, not only for, for that person, but for yourself. Um, stop looking at it through the lens of fear and, oh, my God, this change would impact me. Absolutely. So, Mercedes, I wanted to ask you, given all that, what do you think patent lawyers and others can do to help increase the number of women and other underrepresented minorities in STEM? I think that we have to take a step back and think about things differently. So that's number one. But more importantly, there are opportunities for us to get involved. Uh, Dean Kamen's first robotic first program for robotic challenges. Um, I think that was the one where the Afghani girls came in and competed. Um, that's not going to happen anymore. No. Talk about a group yeah. running in fear. Um, camp invention at the USPTO. I'm sure that there are local ways to get involved with that. Um, the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, we are creating... Um, materials to go out to the community. And I just had the opportunity to do that in Olney, Maryland at a STEM-based middle school. And of course they decided, oh, Mercedes, you know how to do this. You're going to teach the part on business plans and we'll let the other guys teach, you know, given we already have those materials about what IP is. And I went, oh, great. I got to create the materials. Um, so I got to teach eighth graders about business plans and how to put a business plan together. And they had created some of these great ideas. Um, and it's helpful that I have a sixth grader at home. And I knew that I had to make it interesting because my sixth grader would, would be really upset with mom if it was boring. And I told the students that. And, you know, I said, okay, give me some ideas. And one of the ideas one kid had was to make a basketball more grippable. And I said, well, what are you doing with it now? And he goes, well, we put, you know, those plastic bags from the grocery store on the ball and we play, but they don't last very long. And so we were playing with the idea and I kept pushing back and saying, well, what about this? What about that? How much money do you think you need? How much do you think for manufacturing costs? Um, you know, how are you going to take this out? And we talked about business plans and the simplicity of a business plan. And who knew the Small Business Administration had business plans that I could um, plagiarize and bring with me. Um, and one was on a toy company. And I said, look, business plan is three things. And it's not as scary as you think. It's where am I now or what do I have in my hands? What do I want to do with it? And how do I get there? Three, three issues. I said, you got your idea. What do you want to do with your idea? Yeah, you want to make a lot of money. I got that. How do we do that? How are we going to get there? What are the steps? What are you visualizing? I said, I want you to visualize what that idea would be and what are competitors going to do? And so we played with it. And um, the two other attorneys, one was in-house, one was at Finnegan, said, we don't know what you did to that first group, but man, they were riled up when they got up here to learn about IP. So, <laughs> That's you great. Make it, they will come. And yeah. working on the materials, and I, when we worked on the materials, I said, look, this is death by PowerPoint to a lawyer, let alone an eighth grader. <laughs> we have to put things in there that they know about, because when my sixth grader knows what an NFT is, 
and Donald Trump's NFT, we have issues here. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it, it takes me back a little bit. I'll share one little personal story about STEM um, and patents. And but, but what I get out of your answer is that there's it's n- nothing easy is going to fix the problem. We have to address it at lots of levels with lots of people and resources and good old fashioned like teaching and mentoring. And, you know, I, I actually used to be involved in a nonprofit uh, called City Science. It was a STEM education focused uh, nonprofit up in the New York and New Jersey area. And it was focused on the fact that uh, it was focused on middle schoolers and high schoolers because those are the times when a lot of kids sort of fall off on science. Uh, a lot of times you get teachers, uh, you know, in seventh and eighth grade who, you know, <laughs> aren't really science teachers. And it's just a natural point uh, where you get kind of drop off. And so we did um, we, we went into schools and after school programs and partnered with folks like the National Urban League. Um, and it was really focused on like place like loca- location-based learning and also making it fun and saying like you know what do you guys want to do and it's so funny so i'm i'm a nominally a patent lawyer i'm an ip lawyer i'm i've always been more of a litigator licensor i'm not so much a prosecutor um i, I do oversee some prosecution but i saw david Ka- david capo speak at an event in new york um it was the first time i had met him um and i went up to him afterwards i said hey you know, you're the director of the patent office and the undersecretary, you know, you know, of commerce focused on innovation. I have this little startup and, you know, could you help me? Could you connect me? What can we do? Um, and he connected me to folks at the patent office. They had really cool resources on technology and brand and little videos. And and I'm a little embarrassed to share, but I'll share it here as a little goodie for podcast listeners. But um, to the extent people care. But the first time I ever went to the patent office in D.C., it was for a city science, not for my day job. And it was to meet with those folks and see their museum of innovation. But you know what you said, it's about like connecting to kids, making it fun, making it cool. And there's, there's, and and providing resources and time and there's no kind of easy answer, but that's what it takes. Well, and I think it also goes back to the concept of creating a commons of organizations um, that are doing the same thing, but working in isolation and recreating the damn wheel. Um, And you know, bringing those organizations together. And that's one thing that I've sort of pounded my fist on the table on for IPOEF is saying, look, let's align with other organizations, um, you know, or the sixth grade through 12th grade teaching modules. And that way you don't have to worry about a one-off or just individual schools. So I wrote down City Science and I'm going to hook you up with IPOEF and say, okay, can we collaborate? Because, you know, it's called leveraging the information and leveraging resources and the geography that we cover. And this is how you do it. Yeah, and no, I love I love that point, and and I think that the three of us could probably do our own little series of podcasts just on this one little discrete issue in STEM, and we could talk about it forever. So absolutely, um, so I love it. But I'll also I'll move on just to another topic that I think we could probably talk forever about. But just an, another one of these gaps, right? So speaking of gaps, um, you know, we're also all lawyers. I wanted to ask you about underrepresentation of women and other minorities in the partnership ranks and the leadership ranks in law firms, because um, you know when you look at it, it feels like, hey, we're making so much progress on diversity. Um, but then you look at these statistics and you realize that the progress has been so slow, and that we probably haven't made as as much progress as we think we have or as much as we need. Um, so as someone steeped in that, I also wanted to get your thoughts on that one. There is another awesome lawyer. She's an African-American lawyer, uh, litigator at Latham. And we were on panel together and, she, and I had my very, very over-the-top slides and she had a set of slides that really told a great story. And it's really uh, thinking about this from a Moneyball perspective, yes, the Oakland A's, we're going to go to Moneyball, and how the legal profession is not taking the learnings from Moneyball and applying them to their own profession. And what do I mean by that? So her analogy was the winning Chicago Bulls dream team. And she said, okay, if the Bulls only took people who were over six foot five, then Steve Kerr would not have been on the Bulls. 
And if they were only Americans allowed, Steve Kerr would not have been allowed because he was Jordanian or Lebanese, I believe. I, I, sorry if I messed that up. Um, and if we only allowed NCAA universities to be the pool that we could select from, then we would have thrown out Scotty Pippen and Dennis Rodman. Um, so what is it we do screen for? We screen for law school and GPA. Okay. Yep. Yep. So let, let's talk money ball. What is it we need in our profession? Accountability. Absolutely. Analysis and reasoning. Yes, we need writing and we need attention to detail, but we also need grit and resourcefulness. Uh, we need great interpersonal skills, right? So not just a bookworm who um, cannot talk to others. Um, oral communication, integrity, problem solving, adaptability, judgment and critical thinking, individual motivation to achieve. And I always loved it at some of the firms that I was at, and they would go on and on about, oh, yes, we only hire from these schools and only the top of the class. And I said, hey, over here, third tier law school, bottom of the class, still making more rain than those people. Um, do you see a problem here? <laughs> so, you know, again, it's. It's a problem there, and I've also seen uh, a lawyer commit, well, it was in the news, a lawyer committing suicide, and two years prior, he had done a winning argument before the Supreme Court, but the law firm told him he was going to be let go. He was 60, wow. and so he committed suicide yeah. because he'd be a future. This is this was a gold-plated lawyer, you know, Yale, I think it was Yale undergrad, Yale Law School, or wow. Harvard undergrad law school you know what all of us would love to have why did he fail yeah why did we throw out that human resource who just won two years prior yeah. what do we value how do we set those values so and even with you know covid covid was such a great example of forced change on everybody Wow, everybody had to become flexible overnight, practically. And now I hear a lot of law firms pushing to have people back in the office. Well, in part because what's their biggest cost? It's real estate um, and rent. But a lot of people, men and women alike, are like, we like the flexibility. We have more time to exercise, more time to take care of ourselves because we're not having to deal with a commute. Exactly. Yeah. I have uh, not uh, heard a woman complain that you know or or promote being back in the office extroverts promote being back in the office if you're introverted man covid was great uh i certainly enjoyed it as an introvert um we are rigid in how we view things we are rigid in how we hire we are rigid in how we value each other we are peaceful of our human resources, where some groups at some big law firms may turn over associates 100%. And I saw this when I was a baby lawyer, 100% in two, two to three years, or 80% in two to three yep. years. Um, we waste people. Yeah, we don't so, educate so, people, waste people. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, and, and, you know, you mentioned a couple mental health things and we definitely want to get to that topic, but you brought up Moneyball and Steve Kerr. And so just, I'll, I'll just, I have to stop and comment on that because it's such a great point. And in terms of what we screen for, but what we need and the huge disconnect, um, right. Like, and, and Steve, and Steve Kerr, um, I, I actually like sports as proof of like end to end value. Um, so Steve Kerr not only played with Michael Jordan and won championships, he's the coach of the Golden State Warriors now. Um, and so like that legacy, <laughs> who you become, who you mentor, what you build is really, really long term. And you're right. Like, you know, if you're not 
if you don't have a wide pool and cast a wide net, you're not getting those people. And I I had the pleasure of meeting and interviewing Steve Kerr once. He's an incredible um, advocate for uh, you know gun control and gun safety in the real world um, because of uh, his father and his family situation. Um, but he he's incredible, and I think it's a great point, right? If you're only looking at big at Division One schools, you're never going to come up with a Dennis Rodman or a Scottie Pippen. And I think a lot of people kind of blow past that, right? And I think about Moneyball. You know, think the way that they, that, that they evaluate people and looking at like, wow, that guy's got a chiseled jaw. Um, you know, he looks great. And sort of that 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 hefty catcher who just gets on base all the time is sort of overlooked and undervalued. So I, I just think it's a great point to pause on and think about and a great analogy. When do we lose women in the profession? Women are at about 40 percent in law firms up until their fourth decade of life. What happens in their fourth decade of life? It's called the sandwich generation. Women have an undue burden of having to deal with aging parents. Yep. They have an undue burden generally with children. Um, and both of those come together along with their burgeoning rainmaking career and the stresses of being. And the lack of flexibility for women. Um, either in taking a, uh, a break for several months or even a year. Um, many firms are not flexible in that, and so they just quit. And I've heard of a lot of colleagues quitting and just taking a time out for a while for mental health. I have two Mercedes. It's just that, you know, and going part-time isn't an option either because then you get questioned about your commitment to the firm and your career and everything else. So they just flat out quit because it's just easier. Well, and Elaine Spector, who's a very good friend who you mentioned earlier, you know, it was also a slippery slope of part-time could also mean increasing work for you getting dumped on, but without getting paid exactly. for it. Exactly. So um, it, it, Again, back to the system, the system is too rigid in how we value each other and not everyone is capable of, you know, working seven days a week with only four hours of sleep. Uh, you are actually preventing uh, people with health conditions, Let them forget mental health conditions, health conditions uh, from reaching their best and reaching their value and contributing or feeling like they can contribute in a way that they're valued. Um, so all of those things have, I think, contributed to why you watch the rate of women drop from 40% to 27% by their 40s. And when I looked around at some firms as to who was successful, the women who had stay-at-home husbands or partners or had a partner with a lesser job or not as taxing job um, were more successful than other women. Or if you go to Japan, you just watch the women who were my contemporaries and older never have children because it wasn't an option. They were not permitted. Yeah, I've seen the same thing. And I think essentially what you're saying is, you know, we have a culture problem. I think that's what the three of us are saying right now. And, you know, you've mentioned mental health throughout this discussion so far, but I think ultimately it comes down to the fact that the culture needs to change and it's very, very slow in law firms getting that culture to change and some wonder, will it ever change? So in this podcast, and Lisa and I are aligned on this, and I'm so glad, uh, you know, inclusion is in the title, but we also talk about mental health um, because there are really straight lines and that's connect. Uh, it's all kind of connected. And, you know, one thing I just want to mention, because I, I know it's a it's a pushback that a lot of people um, provide before we leave that topic and, and move to mental health. But, um, you know, you talked about the criteria being, you know, law school and grades. And I think there are a lot of people whose reaction to that is like, well, duh, of course, we want smart people. And being smart is really important, so why not? And I think to that, I'll just share one personal experience that was really eye-opening for me. Because, um, you know, when I, when I was a kid, like, I was good at school. I went to an Ivy League school. I went to Penn. When we were at Penn, we thought it was kind of funny. Now I kind of cringe. Like, the, the, the bookstore sold T-shirts that said, not Penn State. 
um, with the with the UPenn logo on it, right? And when I but when I get, got into the actual world and I had my first job working for um, you know back then Anderson Consulting now Accenture, I was in a start group with kids from Penn, Penn State, Lehigh, like all sorts of different schools, um, and we were all doing the same job. And much to my shock, a lot of them were way better at it than I was. Um, and so that's really eye-opening. And that's something that I've sort of kept in mind about this whole issue of what are we looking at and really taking a bigger tent view of that. I think that, you know, you can't have belonging uh, without inclusion. And you can't have inclusion without the diversity and equity which require the foundation of psychological safety. And I say that because in the recent IP Law 360 article on me, you know, one of the questions was, have you ever been sexually harassed or, you know, subject to sexism? And I had a fairly senior partner at a very well-known firm say, you know, I learned something reading that article where I came out and said, yeah, I was sexually harassed by the name partner in front of his secretary where he felt me up. But I was a law student. What was I going to do? I wasn't going to make an issue out of it. It's a, come on, I'm a lawyer. I do the business of law. It's a business decision for any litigation. And that business decision was I will ruin even the chance of having a career if I did something back in the 90s when we were still required to wear high heels and pantyhose to work, sort of the backlash to Me Too and Black Lives Matter and Asian Lives Matter, I've heard male partners at another firm say, I'm not going to go out to lunch with a female associate that I don't know and trust because, you know, from the Pence standpoint, that's not proper. Or for generations older, my wife will get jealous. I hear you. I never had that opportunity. And you're now preventing the opportunity for a young female associate to get to know you, see what you do and work with you because you're scared. I never have that shot. And I am still sometimes the only woman in the room or the only white woman in the room when I'm doing diligences. And or going to Japan, um, I don't have the choice to do anything else. And have I had people and clients think I was somebody's tea girl when I went with a male partner older than me? Sure, I blew it off. It embarrassed him, but I was just like, okay, so what? No harm, no foul. Move on. Um, let's go make some work. Um, It's not an easy thing, but I think we have to tell those stories because in the backlash to say that women are going to basically blackmail you because they're alone in a room with you. No. Are there people like that? Yeah. Just like there's guys who sexually harass other men uh, or senior female partners who sexually harass men. There's always going to be a bad egg. But who gives you the right to prevent an opportunity? And there's this great story, and I don't know if you want to use it, and it's a pie-eating story. And yes, this was at a very large general practice firm. And they had a pie-eating contest for their new um, lawyers. And I tell the stories to mixed groups. And the women had the same reaction of, ew. Um, So they lined up all the new associates who just graduated law school around, you know, the huge conference table and put the pies down for the pie eating. And this one associate um, picked up the pie tin, flipped it over and proceeded to vacuum clean up the pie. And the um, general counsel of the firm turned to the tax attorney. This is a story that the general counsel told me. And said, I don't know who he is, but man, he figured out that problem really quickly. I'd put him on my team. (laughs) Wow. I thought, okay, how many women would have partaken of that pie eating? And would they have said the same thing about a woman doing it? Mm. How many? And I don't know the answer to that. 
Was there anybody who was perhaps slightly overweight? Would they have done it? How would somebody have viewed them for doing it if they had even won? Right, right. A person of color had done it. And how would that have been viewed for them? And I tell this story and I say, look, I know that law firm meant no ill intent to anybody. Right. Okay. Um, But what opportunities were lost because of long held uh, cultural perceptions of people who are overweight? women absolutely and how we eat pies yeah it's a great story it's a great story and we've stumbled into one another one of my life rules which is if anyone tells me a pie eating story i always put it on my podcast so (laughs) for sure we're using that so switching gears um i know we've been going for a while and we could talk about these topics i think all day um I, i also want i wanted to give lisa a chance to close us out by, by just talking a little bit about attorney ethics, because I know that's another another area that you speak and write and advise on. And I think some of the themes we've been talking about today connect to that. So, Lisa? Yeah. So, Mercedes, I know that's a really big area for you. As a matter of fact, I, I recall one time I, I was at a conference and I actually heard you talk about attorney ethics. So what suggestions do you have for attorneys for avoiding common ethical issues and problems and what they can do to mitigate those? I am a huge proponent for attorneys to get involved with legal organizations so that they can attend those meetings and hear lectures of what's going on in the industry and what the problems are. And that was how I sort of got involved with ethics myself. Uh, I was a big fan of Professor David Prisick. And I said, you need to write a textbook. And he's like, funny, you should say that. I'm doing it. You want to do it with me? And I'm sure, not knowing what I was getting into. (laughs) Um, but it helped me learn a lot more than I ever knew. And all I keep realizing is how much I don't know. And I see lawyers perhaps making, uh, mistakes in politics who are, they're also lawyers and we're lawyers 24 seven. Um, and I see people wanting to change systems and, all I can say is be curious, learn the law. Don't just sit there and take your ethics exam after law school and expect it to be over, even if your jurisdiction doesn't have um, ethics requirements. And some states are also having now mental health uh, CLE requirements as well as diversity CLE requirements. And I think all of those are necessary. Um And I think in the future, sort of what are we starting to see? It's pretty standard. Duty of candor remains a big deal. I think that lawyers forget, and we just, Dave and I just gave a presentation at AIPLA um, on this topic of the duty of reasonable inquiry. And I think lawyers are forgetting to do a duty of reasonable inquiry. And I can give some examples. Um, we are in a data-driven age. And if you start relying on data that may be biased without first investigating whether there's bias in the data or in the assumptions used to analyze the data or the algorithms used to analyze the data, and you give that to a court, how does that play out? Did you actually meet your duty of reasonable inquiry? Um, Why am I raising this particular topic? Um, It's interesting to see that there was a University of California study by the Hastings Law Center professor there on uh, drug statistics for evergreening. And while most of her raw data was correct, she was counting, unfortunately, reissue patents twice instead of once. Um, and then the assumptions that were being made, uh, based on data exclusivity versus patent term extension, those assumptions were incorrect. And so in some instances, you were changing the narrative, which was a concern of Senator Tillis at the Judiciary Committee. Um, and 
uh, Senator Tillis requested January of 2022 uh, a response from the PTO and FDA on this. And as far as I know, no response has been given to date um, because of that concern that we could change the narrative based on such data and even position pieces by groups like IMAC, who would not even provide the data back to Senator Tillis for their statistics. And when you come up with decisions that aspirin has had a period of exclusivity of 100 years, and you tell that to a bunch of drug IP attorneys, they're all in stitches. We have to explain to the public what's really going on and how terminology between two agencies are being permuted. So again, duty of reasonable inquiry, duty of candor, I think that those are going to be increasing as well as fake data. Um, Sorry to bring in Donald Trump, but fake data and fake facts. How do you tell in an AI-driven world driven by bots whether what you're seeing, an image, is real or synthesized. So thank you for talking about that. You know, we, we think a lot about the intersection of, of all these topics, and I just love connecting, you know, ethics to these larger issues about, you know, bias. And we talked about implicit bias on an earlier episode of the podcast and, and just the ability of these to sort of drive tectonic changes, you know, one way or the other. So just really interesting to tie it all up. So thank you so much um, for this really wide ranging and awesome conversation. Um, We appreciate you being on Mercedes. Um, That's all the time we have for for this week's episode. So Lisa and I will catch you next time on the Inclusion Evolution. Thank you for listening to Inclusion Evolution. The views expressed during this podcast are solely those of the hosts and not of their respective law firms. Share your thoughts with us by emailing us at llmuller at casimerjones.com or mkasden at wigan.com.